0: Hey, it's Martine. So lately, our podcast has been periodically airing episodes of Broken Doors, a new investigative series from The Washington Post. It's about how no-knock warrants are used in the American justice system and what happens when accountability fails. You may have heard the first three episodes in your feed some Fridays ago. Today, we're back with more from this series with episode four— and this episode is about something that I had never heard of before this concept of e warrants and how technology is changing the way that police are executing warrants and raising all kinds of questions about how these warrants get approved. It was totally shocking to me and fascinating. So that's episode four, which we are playing today. And if you have not yet heard the first three episodes of the series, I highly recommend you go back and listen and also subscribe to Broken Doors at WashingtonPost.com slash Broken Doors. And just a warning before we start, this episode contains explicit language and descriptions of violence. Okay, here's the show.
1: In Port Allen, Louisiana, there's this motel, the Budget 7. It's next to a gas station and right up the road from a place called Super Lucky Louis Casino. I knew about the motel because it was listed in records about a fatal no knock warrant. The warrant also led me to Jessica Kluot.
2: Hi. Hi, nice to meet you. Hi, I'm I'm Sabi. Sorry, Audio
1: producer good. Sabi Robinson and I traveled to Louisiana last summer, and Jessica offered to drive us to the motel. The
2: hotel's actually like five minutes from there, four minutes. Yeah, it's close.
1: I got into the back seat. Sabi was up front with her microphone and recording gear. And before long, the motel came into view. From far away, it looks like it could be made out of Legos. The brick is painted in a bright yellowy-orange color. Not quite one or the other, and the doors are painted sky blue. Jessica pulled into a parking spot. Oh, see? Actually, you parked right in front of it. Yeah. Is it
2: number five? Yeah.
1: And then we learned that, for almost the last two years, coming here had become a kind of ritual for Jessica. She's been back more than a dozen times.
2: I come here sometimes because I still feel his spirit here, especially at the beginning. So a lot of people would say, how could you come over here and... It doesn't bother you. Of course it bothers me, but this was our last moments together. So I connected with him more by coming here than actually going to see him where he's buried at.
1: On July 25th, 2019, deputies from the West Baton Rouge Parish Sheriff's Office stormed into room number five. One of them shot and killed Jessica's fiance. His name was Joseph Richardson.
2: And sometimes I ask the front desk, could I go inside and just, you know, me and the owner were kind of cool, you know, he knows me. And I would just ask, could I go sit inside and just sit for a few minutes, five, 10 minutes, and he'll let me. And so when I pass, I blow him a kiss or blow my horn Or sometimes I pull up or and I just sit in the car right in front of the room and I listen to music and just talk to him as if he was sitting right next to me like you are.
1: Everything she tells us about Joseph and about that night still feels so raw to her. Joseph's driver's license is still tucked into the little storage compartment above her rearview mirror. His photo is facing out, as if he's watching over her. And one thing she wants us to know as we sit there in front of the motel is how
2: quickly it all happened. You have to imagine this event happening in seconds though, like, like real fast. It's a blink of an eye almost, you know.
1: But what we didn't know then, as we talked in her car, is that the sequence of events that led up to the raid also happened faster than we could have ever imagined. We would discover, almost down to the minute, the amount of time between when the no-knock warrant was filled out to when Joseph Richardson was shot. I'm Nicole Dunka, an investigative reporter at the Washington Post. This is Broken Doors.
3: What gets lost sometimes is the due process in that speed. I know they didn't have a probable cause. That isn't it. Probable
2: cause don't mean shit in Aymer, Mississippi.
3: This is the fourth episode
1: in our series about no knock warrants, the controversial tactic that allows police. force their way into people's homes without warning. In the first three episodes, my reporting partner, Jen Abelson, took us to Monroe County, Mississippi, where for years, no-knocks were the rule rather than the exception. But the fact that raids there were so easy to carry out, that's not unique. We've seen that in different parts of the country, too. As we dig into a couple more cases in the second half of this series, you're going to hear details that we don't usually get about these raids. What we found raises many more questions about how often no-knocks are used and what they're used for. And in this episode, we'll learn about a relatively new way of approving no-knock warrants. And we'll explore whether this method— affects just how much scrutiny these high-risk warrants get from judges. Around the same time that Jen was unraveling what had been going on in Mississippi, I noticed something unusual about a no-knock warrant in Louisiana. It was from the sheriff's office in West Baton Rouge Parish. It was the warrant to search Joseph Richardson's room at the Budget 7 Motel. But Joseph's name wasn't even in the warrant. He was only referred to as, quote, a black male. And the affidavit didn't include any reasons for why it needed to be a no-knock. And there was one other thing. One part of the paperwork looked a little different from other warrants I'd seen.
2: Yeah, this is, um,
1: interesting. Yeah, I'm looking at the warrant right now. Jen saw it, too. It does look like it's like a computer-type signature, both on both ends. We've examined thousands of warrants in the course of our reporting. And in most cases, the signatures of the officer and the judge were always written by hand. An officer usually has to go to a judge in person to get permission for a no-knock warrant and have the paperwork signed. That could mean walking over to a courthouse or driving to a judge's home. But the two signatures on Joseph's warrant were in a digital-looking font. You know when you electronically sign medical forms or a lease online? That's what they looked like. I started reaching out to judges and lawyers in Louisiana. As soon as I described the signatures, they all told me the same thing that it was probably done with this online platform, CloudGavel.
4: Let's say you're an officer working a case. Let's say you need a warrant. So you go to your office, break out your pen, and start writing. No? You use your computer to type it? Of course. Doing things the old-fashioned way is slow, and you need things done fast. Paper is slow. CloudGavel is fast.
1: In this explainer video on the company's website, a hand draws a cartoon of a police officer who looks flustered He's getting dizzy looking at a pile of paperwork in front of him.
4: Log into your CloudGavel account from any internet-connected device. Waiting on the judge to sign is slow. CloudGavel is fast. The judge reviews and approves your warrant
1: online. It reminds me of an episode of Schoolhouse Rock, but instead of how a conjunction functions, it's basically how to get a warrant signed without wasting anyone's time. Cloud Gavel is based in Baton Rouge, just east of the Mississippi River, from the town where Joseph was killed. It's been around since 2016. Cloud Gavel has become one of the most well-known electronic warrant companies in the country. It's especially big in Louisiana. Law enforcement agencies in New Orleans, Baton Rouge, and West Baton Rouge all use it. And it was how the warrant in Joseph's case was signed.
4: As everyone knows, our law enforcement professionals are very constrained in the rules of how they operate and the laws that um, control how they operate.
1: Casey Russell is the president and chief customer officer of Cloud Gavel.
4: Whereas the criminals, they've got no laws. They've got no rules. They've got no boundaries whatsoever. Um, And law enforcement is kind of always playing catch up.
1: He's been with the organization from the very start.
4: So I saw as an opportunity of, you know, how could I participate and develop and create systems or solutions that would at least make it a level playing field, but make sure we kind of force law enforcement to operate within the rules, uh, within the laws, of civil liberties and, and all of those things.
1: Some states have to change their laws in order to make it legal to sign warrants electronically. So far, CloudGavel is being used in nine states and about 200 departments. Casey says people like it because it's easy to use. He says that it can take hours if an officer has to drive to a judge, have a conversation, and then drive back. But with Cloud Gavel, he says the approval process can take minutes. A company information sheet said their technology can speed up the process by 90 percent. Casey says warrants are submitted and approved with an average turnaround time of 18 minutes. And they're proud of this speed. Their tagline is, serves justice, saves time.
4: So... Um, You all should be able to see my screen now. Okay, so this is the officer side, basically their dashboard.
1: During a video interview, Casey clicked on a search warrant template to show us how an officer would fill it out. Um,
4: This opens up right here. So we start off with the document number and their case number. Then they've got the ability to choose.
1: And all an officer has to do to turn it into a no-knock request is to click a button. And if you did want to make it a no-knock warrant, would you have to put in even more additional things?
4: Um, No, it adds the um, sentence. Let me see here. Let me add it. and You'll see what it says.
1: When Casey showed me the template for a no-knock warrant, I recognized a lot of the boilerplate language that was on Joseph's affidavit. The affidavit for Joseph's room said, a fiant has requested and cause has been shown for the authorization of a no-knock entry. So that's the template language. And then it's up to the officer to give reasons for why a normal knock-and-announce warrant would be dangerous or lead to a suspect destroying evidence. In Joseph's case, the deputy who requested the warrant didn't do that. This is the explanation that's given. Quote, Affiant states, in the last 72 hours, the confidential informant purchased a quantity of methamphetamine during a controlled operation from a black male at the Budget Seven Motel, room number five. That's it. The more I learned about Joseph's case, the more I wondered whether the planning and approval process for the warrant could have played a role in what happened to him. Then, Casey told me about a feature that could help me figure this out.
4: There's a full audit trail from the time the warrant is started for the entire life of this warrant. So anytime it was created, it was printed, it was viewed, anything that ever happens with the warrant, the system tells you who did it, what they did, when they did it.
1: That caught my attention. That meant there were timestamps of when an officer sent the affidavit and when a judge approved it. So as the series has shown, it's already pretty easy to get a no knock. And I wondered if approving warrants electronically, which was supposed to speed up the process, was making it even easier to get these warrants. It would take me a while to get the timestamps. I also had a lot of audio recordings and documents to go through to compare the accounts of what happened the night of the raid. And I wanted to learn more about Joseph. His friends called him Joe. He was 38 years old when he was killed and had three children. Joseph was one of eight tight-knit siblings. When I traveled to Louisiana, I met some of his family at his sister's house. Hi. Say hi. hi, Nicole. Oh, you guys have a Joseph Matters t shirts A few were wearing t-shirts with a photo of Joseph's face on them. He had a big smile and deep dimples. They all wanted the chance to tell a story about him.
3: He used to get into everything. He used to make us laugh. He never met anyone that he couldn't make a friend with. He loved playing pranks on you, jokes and stuff.
1: Those are his sisters, Dorian Jones and Desiree Richardson. We spent the most time with Jessica Kluot, his fiance. She met with us a couple of times while we were in Port Allen. After she took us to the motel, we also went to a levee near the Mississippi River. It's where they used to take walks.
2: I just started falling in love with everything he did. It it began to be his laugh, his smile. When I asked how he had proposed, she told
1: me that it wasn't anything formal. He just said it one day, that they were going to get married. And it's what Jessica wanted, too. This was at the end of 2017. They started getting to know each other about three years earlier, while Joseph was serving time for a drug conviction. Jessica had been speaking to a friend of hers who was also incarcerated. And that friend passed the phone to Joseph. She had known who he was and didn't think anything of
2: it. But she began seeing Joseph in a different light. He wasn't my type of guy, I would say. and But he kept on assisting, and he kept on, and he kept on. He was like, you're going to be for me. There was no doubt they had a connection and started talking almost
1: every day about their families and about life. When he was released,
2: they started dating. I never forget the first night I stayed with him, we went walking and I had some white shoes on and they were dirty. And we stayed at his aunt's house and I was still sleeping that morning and he was up early. I think it was like seven, six, seven. And I'm saying to myself, What are you up so early for? And I leaned up to see what he was doing. He was sitting at the foot of the bed, and he had a toothbrush and a towel, and he was wiping my shoes for me and getting all the mud off. And I was like, how sweet is this? I never had a man do nothing like that before. And then he cooked some breakfast for not only me, he made breakfast for everybody there. And it ended up being like that every day. Every day it was like that.
1: They had their challenges too. They were once arrested together in 2017 and charged with possession with intent to distribute marijuana. Joseph pleaded guilty in that case, and the charges against Jessica were dropped. And Joseph's other convictions included battery and resisting an officer. Jessica also told me they got pulled over a lot. She's white and wondered sometimes if he was targeted because he was black. But she always felt like they could get through things together. And she wanted to build a life with him. In July of 2019, they were looking for an apartment to live in when they booked the room at the Budget 7 Motel in Port Allen. Joseph's teenage daughters had been staying with them at the motel. They would watch television and eat takeout together. The girls had left the day before the raid to stay with their mom been staying here? Because you were waiting for Yeah, apartment.
2: And actually, I spoke with somebody. We were supposed to meet with them the day of his murder. We were supposed to meet with her, but we never got to.
1: I'm going to take you through what Jessica remembers about the night of the raid. In the early evening of July 25th, She was sitting on the bed after taking a shower. She said Joseph was walking around the room in Nike shorts. He was also wearing a black Nike shirt, according to the autopsy report.
2: I was on my phone watching YouTube.
1: She said the door to their room was cracked open a little bit. And all of a sudden, from where she was lying down, she saw the door fly open.
2: Boom, and then I heard, West Baton Rouge Sheriff's Office, put your hands up.
1: Jessica said that deputies in police gear burst into the motel room with their handguns drawn. She said she didn't hear any mention of a search warrant. She was terrified and put her hands up. She said Joseph had his hands up too and the deputies were yelling at him.
2: And an officer immediately grabbed him and bent his arm hard. Another deputy stayed close, with his gun still drawn. But it's hard for me to see a lot because they're both standing over him. And then I look back at them and then boom, I see the gun go off, but I couldn't see actually where the bullet hit. Because at the moment, as soon as I seen the gun go off on Joseph, one was coming at me with the gun. So it all took place, and I had to just gather my thoughts. I was just in so much shock.
1: She was taken out of the room, handcuffed, and put in a car. A few minutes later, she was driven to the sheriff's office. While she sat there, she asked an officer sitting near her
2: a question. I just was crying, and I was like, I just was in a daze because so much was on my mind at that time. Like, I didn't understand, like, really what was going on. And I said to him, I say, where's Joe? And he gets up, and he comes from behind the desk, and he just reaches out to grab my hands. But I already knew what he's about to tell me. And he said, Joseph is dead. And I just told him, I said, no way. This can't be true. I knew that they shot him, but for him to tell me he's no longer here, I didn't understand. You know, I was just talking to him. We were just together. And not only that, I was sad and hurt. I was just so angry. I never pictured somebody... Who's supposed to protect and serve us, take our life?
5: You're um, Brett Brett Cavalier. Brett Cavalier? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, We're present at the West Baton Rouge Parish Sheriff's Office. The time is uh, 10.51 p.m. The date is July 25th, uh, 2019, present. That's myself, Investigator Bill Cox from uh, Louisiana State Police.
1: After the raid, an investigator from the Louisiana State Police interviewed many of the people involved with the case. This is standard practice in any fatal police shooting. Most of the interviews were done either that night or in the days following the raid. I requested the recordings to compare them to what Jessica had described to us. And to learn more about why the deputies felt the raid was necessary, because again, the explanation in the affidavit was so brief, it only mentioned that a confidential informant bought meth from a blackmail in room number five at the motel.
6: Uh,
5: We're here to discuss an officer-involved shooting that occurred earlier this evening. Uh, Brett, why don't you tell me uh, what you did today uh, that led up to this uh, shooting? Leading into it, we've had um, knowledge that a male was selling narcotics out of the Budget 7, Room Number 5.
1: This is a state investigator interviewing Deputy Brett Cavalier. He's the one who requested the no-knock warrant. When Joseph was killed, Deputy Cavalier had been with the West Baton Rouge Sheriff's Office since 2014 he was a member of the River West Narcotics Task Force. Um,
5: so yeah, we did confirm that it was Joseph Richardson, which is somebody who I have arrested in the past for narcotics violations.
1: Joseph's past came up a lot in the interviews with deputies.
5: So me and Joseph, the few times I have have dealt with him in the past, he's always resisted. He either runs or he resists to an extent. I mean, he's always trying to run. Mm-hmm. Um, Like I said, the few times that I have dealt with him in the past.
1: And they didn't just talk about Joseph's past. They also talked about that confidential informant who was mentioned in that single sentence in the affidavit. Deputy Cavalier told investigators that the task force had sent the informant into Joseph's motel room on the day of the raid to buy $50 worth of meth. He also said the informant mentioned that he'd once seen Joseph with a gun during another drug buy but it's not clear when that took place
5: he admitted that in the past he has purchased drugs from Joseph on other occasions and he said that one time Joseph stood there and made him use drugs in front of him while holding a gun making sure you know that he was not working as an informant or the police at the same time but,
1: What really struck me is that this and Joseph's past are being raised after the fact, seemingly as a way to explain the shooting. But the thing is, none of those reasons were cited in the affidavit. And that's where officers generally need to lay out the risks they would face if they knocked and announced themselves. There was no mention at all of Joseph potentially having a gun. And after the shooting, the informant changed his story when he spoke to the investigator. We have that tape too, and I should say that the informant's name is not mentioned in any documents or recordings we have.
0: You could see the gun, or he couldn't see it. I guess not really. I guess not. A gun. And did he say
5: he had a gun? No. Okay. But did you ultimately tell? Yes, I all him told him that I did, so it was pretty.
1: Hard. It's hard to make out, but the informant admits he'd been pretty high during this interaction with Joseph and hadn't actually seen a gun. Confidential informants are a big part of drug investigations, but they can be unreliable. And that was true in this case. When it came to the raid, Deputy Cavalier said that as he and the other deputies entered the motel room, he called out that they had a search warrant. And unlike Jessica, Deputy Cavalier said that Joseph did not put his hands up.
5: Joseph turned around facing us, put his right hand in his pocket. You know, so guns drawn, telling him to take his hands out of his pockets. And whenever we did that, he started walking towards us.
1: So he grabbed Joseph. And he said Joseph kept resisting him.
5: I got elbowed in the rib whenever he turned. Um, But you know that's that's the the level of resistance because whenever I grabbed him, he uh, he turned, spun out of my hand. Well, one hand I had, one hand on him, and then uh, I was trying to get, I was about to get another grip on him, but never. At
1: this point, another deputy said he put his gun away to help Cavalier.
5: Joseph then, like, turned his back towards me and reached into his waistband with his other hand and kept turning to, like, if he was going to spin all the way around on me. During that time period, he reached in his waistband. He's pulled an object out, and that's whenever the shots were fired. It turned out to be a
1: single shot, fired by one of the other deputies in the room, Deputy Vance Matranga. Deputy Matranga started working for the West Baton Rouge Sheriff's Office in 2010 before becoming full-time two years later. In his interview with the investigator, he said he'd worked as a firearms instructor for several years. Deputy Matranga also said he knew of Joseph before the night of the raid. And... Like Deputy Cavalier, he also said he saw an object in Joseph's hand.
5: You felt like Deputy Cavalier was in imminent danger of of receiving uh, or or possibly receiving some kind of injury from
1: Joseph.
6: Absolutely. When he spun into him, I felt like he was about to, again, it could have been stabbed, but I thought he was going to get shot.
1: Deputy Matranga fired his gun and shot Joseph once in the back of the neck. But the object Joseph was holding wasn't a weapon. It was a plastic bag, according to an attorney general's report on the shooting. The bag was filled with smaller plastic bags containing drugs. 4.4 grams of cocaine, 8.9 grams of marijuana, and 9.1 grams of meth. Police also found scales and a few prescription pills. A lab tested one of them, and it contained hydrocodone. But police never found a gun anywhere in the room. Joseph had been unarmed. As I went through this tape, I was listening for whether the deputies would talk about seeing Joseph with a gun in the past or if they had exchanged fire with him before. From the records I have, there's no mention of anything like that. When we spoke with Jessica, she told us that she couldn't talk to us about what police found in the room, because she was arrested and charged that night with possession with intent to distribute several drugs— but she wanted us to know that she had never, in all their time together, seen Joseph with a gun.
2: He never had a gun. Never have witnessed in my time. I can't speak before my time, but I, I mean, I can speak during my time. I've never seen him carry no gun.
1: And again, there was no mention of a gun in the affidavit asking for a warrant. There was only so much I could learn from these police recordings, so I wanted to talk to as many people involved with that night as possible. I reached out to the judge, Deputy Cavalier, and Deputy Matranga, but it seemed like none of them wanted to talk to me. Then, one day my phone rang.
6: Hi, Chris Nicole. Hi, yes, this is Nicole. Hi, Nicole,
1: this is Vance. How are you
6: doing?
1: It was Deputy Vance Matranga, it's not often that sheriffs, deputies, or police officers speak with journalists on the record about cases where they've killed someone. I, I think you are aware I'm looking into the case of Joseph Richardson and so wanted to make sure Ooh. I could talk to you about it um, since you were involved.
6: Uh, so right off the bat, I have to let you know, I'm not allowed to make any statements to any, anybody that works for the press regarding a case, past, present, future, anything like that.
1: For most of the conversation, we had this uncomfortable back and forth where I would ask him questions and he would answer essentially the same way by telling me to look at that attorney general's report.
6: So uh, I can say this, the report from the state police specifically is probably the most accurate report that you could get. And there's not really much else that I could tell you So if you actually read that report, that should answer pretty much every single question you could ever ask me about it because everything was in that report.
1: In that report, the state found that he was justified in shooting Joseph, even if Joseph didn't actually have a gun that night. The report didn't mention that the warrant was approved as a no-knock. It just said it was seen as a, quote, properly secured and duly authorized warrant
6: would love to just be open and just candidly have a conversation. I just don't feel like I can. So, I just have to refer you back to the report and say that, you know, he did have an extensive criminal history." The report
1: said Joseph had at least 31 arrests and 9 convictions. I managed to get a lot of the records for these cases. In 2005, he was accused of hitting his partner at the time. When police responded, he tried to get away and struck a police officer several times as he tried to jump a fence. He pleaded guilty to battery, resisting an officer, and battery of an officer. He had multiple drug charges, When he was killed, he was on parole for his last convictions from that case with Jessica and for obstruction of justice in 2017. The report also said he may have swallowed drugs when he was confronted by police. It summarized an interview with a friend of Joseph's who said that this had actually happened the day before the raid and several times before that. According to the report, the coroner also found meth Marijuana and cocaine in Joseph's system when they did the autopsy. And so I did wonder, you know, how often are you executing these kinds of warrants, like search warrants, either no knock search warrants or knock and announce or just other kinds of warrants? I mean, is that a weekly thing, a daily thing, a monthly thing, that's something that I I feel like I did not get from the report just because it was very focused on the incident. uh,
6: That's not something I could really speak on specifically. Um...
1: The report also left me with some questions about the deputies and their work. There was the changing story of the confidential informant, and then a note. About Deputy Matranga's gun on the night of the raid. The report said it was modified to add an accessory called a ghost connector. It makes it easier to pull the trigger. And the gun he used to shoot Joseph was his personal firearm, not one issued by the sheriff's office. Some firearms experts I spoke with said that an officer modifying a gun could be concerning since it may increase the potential for excessive use of force. A lawsuit filed by Joseph's children claims that the gun modification, quote, recklessly and willfully endangered the lives of anyone Deputy Matranga encountered while executing this warrant. They also claimed that Deputy Matranga was never disciplined for this. And uh, my other question, I know that your gun had been modified... Is that something that still that you still have with on your gun right now?
6: Uh, I guess that's not really something I need to answer. Okay.
1: Um, yeah. I carry a different gun. I, Sorry. A different
6: gun that I'm
1: carrying. I see. Um,
6: that was a personal. Gun.
1: You had, you had a person. Were you? You were using that personal gun, or I thought that was what the mm-hmm. report said. That is correct. Okay. During his interview with investigators, he was asked whether pulling the trigger could have been an accident. Deputy Matrenga denied that possibility and said it was a conscious decision to pull the trigger. And an internal affairs report after the shooting said that Deputy Matrenga hadn't violated any department policies. In the report, he said he modified his gun for a, quote, smoother trigger squeeze. He also said he was cleared to use it by the firearms staff. Also, I asked him about Deputy Cavalier, who requested the no-knock warrant.
6: I would say he is a meticulous and thorough police officer and He's
1: very good at what he does. So the affidavit requesting the warrant didn't contain any of the information that deputies gave about Joseph's past or why they thought he had a gun that night. The closest thing to a justification for the no-knock was that sentence about a black male in room number five selling drugs to a confidential informant. It contains no information about why the warrant needed to be a no-knock specifically. That's unusual. And as I mentioned earlier, doesn't follow what officers are generally supposed to do for a warrant like this. I talked to some constitutional law experts, and they say that not citing why a no-knock is necessary would technically violate the Fourth Amendment. Because it doesn't follow Supreme Court rulings that deal with when police can force their way into homes the reasoning is supposed to be stated in the affidavit. And most of the no-knocks we've reviewed had at least some kind of short explanation, the possibility of danger or that a suspect was seen with a gun. And remember too, Joseph's warrant didn't even name him. The rest of the affidavit offers no other details on Joseph or who else might be in the room with him, that it was possible his fiance might be there or his kids. Because of what I had learned about how CloudGavel makes the process quicker, I still had another question about the warrant. How long did it take to get approved? For weeks, I made it my mission to get my hands on the timestamps. They would show exactly what time the warrant was submitted and approved. When I was in West Baton Rouge Parish, I visited the clerk of the court, Mark Graffio, to see if he had it. He's the person in charge of all the paperwork for the parish court. And he told me that he didn't have that information. In fact, he didn't even know that they were using cloud gavel. His office relied on the police officers to print out the search warrants and file them with the court. And then I went directly to Judge Tanya Lurie. She's the judge who approved the warrant. I left her a letter and rang her doorbell. But her office wouldn't give me any information, and she didn't respond to my requests for an interview. But about a month after I left Baton Rouge, the sheriff's office eventually sent me an email with a screenshot from the CloudGavel software. And there it was. After the break, what that screenshot revealed and the questions it raises... I'm Hannah Rosen, host of Radio Atlantic. Wait, really? Every week, we talk to Atlantic writers or other creative thinkers, and we take one idea and we road test it. Maybe what I'm asking is, is the problem them or us? Sometimes I change my mind about things. That's such a good point. I never thought of that. Maybe you will, too. Or at least you might see something differently. Ooh, that's fabulous. Radio Atlantic. New episodes every Thursday. The new information I had showed that Deputy Cavalier submitted the warrant at 6.06 p.m. the night of the raid. We know he was in his office, based on his interview with investigators. We don't know when exactly Judge Lurie opened it or where she was when she did. We also don't know whether they spoke by phone. What we do know, based on the screenshot from the sheriff's office is that at 6:17 p.m. Judge Lurie approved the warrant. That's 11 minutes from when Deputy Cavalier sent the warrant to when Judge Lurie signed off on it. And less than half an hour later, Joseph was shot.
4: Well, look. I think it's always a tragedy when someone gets killed, um, regardless of what side it's on. Um, you know, no one ever wants um, to hear that.
1: Casey Russell, the president of Cloud Gavel, hadn't heard about the Joseph Richardson case before we spoke with him.
4: But you know, in this case, there's there's a number of circumstances that you need to you know look into that are completely isolated so for example when it comes to the warrant the concern is did probable cause exist for these officers to obtain a no knock search warrant under the parameters of the law did that exist and someone can look at that warrant on the validity of that warrant and say hey yes, it existed, no, it didn't, and make that judgment in accordance with the law.
1: He didn't believe Cloud Gavel's technology had any bearing on the raid on Joseph's motel room. He said if the warrant had been on paper, the judge still could have signed it just as quickly. How
4: quick it happened, in my mind, is not relevant.
1: Even by CloudGavel standards, though this turnaround time was quick. Around the time Joseph was killed, CloudGavel created a document that said that the average turnaround time for its warrants was 27 minutes. Judge Lurie and Deputy Cavalier beat that by 16 minutes. Still, Casey said he doesn't think CloudGavel's technology leads to any less scrutiny. And so you don't think that, you know, being able to kind of just flip through a warrant on your phone might lead to, you know, people skimming over these kinds of warrants or. It
4: it goes to professional responsibility. So I'm and you can probably tell I'm a little emotional with this, but I am a huge proponent of no judge. The responsibility is on you to I'm giving you or we're giving you this ability to do your job more efficiently, I'm not lessening your responsibility. You still have the responsibility to make sure that you adequately give this authority because our civil rights depend on that. Now we can have a debate on whether we not, we think the laws need to be changed and that's a separate debate, Um, but From our product standpoint, whether an officer or a warrant is morally justified, that's not our decision to make.
3: The judiciousness that needs to be given to the scrutiny of these things, the speed of these takes some of that away. Reverend Alexis
1: Anderson is a founding member of a criminal justice coalition in Baton Rouge. She's monitored police and court systems there for years.
3: I think it it is a bridge too far to believe that every single warrant is getting scrutinized. And that is not to say that I think that judges across the board don't study things. But I do know what I have seen. Is they come fast and furious, and the average amount of time that is used to evaluate these is in seconds, not not hours. So, while the technology certainly speeds up the process, what gets lost sometimes is the due process in that speed. Because we're assuming, quite frankly, that great thought is given to these warrants. And sometimes that's not true, these things come day and night.
1: This isn't just a concern in Louisiana. Police departments in Utah mostly use electronic warrants. A few years ago, a libertarian think tank, the Libertas Institute, actually got timestamps to see how long judges were taking to look at all kinds of warrants, not just no knocks. And they shared them with the Salt Lake Tribune newspaper, which wrote about them in 2018. It turned Judges approved them about 98% of the time. And judges approved more than half of the warrants in less than 10 minutes. That's less time than it takes to cook a frozen pizza. During our investigation, we found that judges rarely vet the confidential sources mentioned in the affidavits. And there's no requirement for them to do that. The judge in this case, Judge Tanya Lurie, was pretty new to the bench when Joseph was killed. She'd been elected to her position in the 18th Judicial District the year before and had been a prosecutor and a public defender. In fact, she'd even been Joseph's public defender in the case where Joseph and his fiancée Jessica had been charged. Now Judge Lurie presides over a lot of the criminal cases in the West Baton Rouge
0: Parish Court.
1: When we visited the courthouse over the summer, Jessica was there for an update on her case. And Judge Lurie was on the bench. Jessica is still dealing with charges from the raid. She faces felony possession with intent to distribute meth, marijuana, cocaine, and a version of the drug Xanax, as well as possession of drug paraphernalia. She has pleaded not guilty. I have no idea whether Judge Lurie had made the connection between Jessica and Joseph, who she'd once represented. Judge Lurie has never spoken about the case publicly. But one of Joseph's nephews, Raynard Douglas III, told us that the judge had once spoken to him about it at a basketball game.
3: The judge actually came and sat next to me. I don't think she knew she was sitting next to me until she actually looked up but um, and someone was asking about the case because the case was still fresh and asking how the family was and, and I was explaining to them the different things the family was going through and she actually turned and she was like you know I wish I wouldn't had I known it was something like had I known that would have happened I wouldn't have signed that warrant in so many words I can't quote her exact words but in so many words it was She wished she had signed that warrant, that
1: type. We tried to confirm this interaction with a judge in her office. Nobody got back to me. I kept in touch with Jessica as I continued digging into the case. When I was getting to the end of my reporting on Joseph's death, I called her again to tell her what else I had learned.
2: Despite of what, whatever reason, whatever reason, Joseph did not deserve to die that day. And that is why I fight. You know, anything else I throw out the window, I don't care. It's irrelevant to me. My boyfriend did not deserve to die that day, especially in a brutal way like that. And that's why I fight for him. You know, there's nothing you can say that would make me feel any different. You didn't have a right to kill him. He did not have a gun. He was turned away from you. He was defenseless. And you killed him.
1: Jessica and Joseph's family said they're hoping that their lawsuits will keep the case in the spotlight so that someone is held legally responsible for Joseph's death. In 2019, Joseph's children filed a federal civil suit against the sheriff's office, accusing them of wrongful death and excessive force. Their lawsuit says that the deputies showed willful, reckless, and callous disregard to Joseph's life and that they conspired and colluded to present a false narrative to justify the shooting. Jessica filed a separate suit the following year.
7: I think no-knock warrants are dangerous. If you bust down the door without announcing yourself, you don't know what's going on in that person's head. It could be the police coming after me, or it could be a rival coming in, or somebody know that I'm holding, coming to rob or, or hurt me or the folks that are with me. And so your initial reaction is going to be to defend yourself. And so I think it puts police officers in a bad position.
1: This is Ron Haley, the lawyer representing Joseph's
7: children. Police bust up in the house, tear it up, and only come out with an amount of contraband that would amount to a possession charge, right? And now this person's house is torn up. They're financially in, in, in ruins. Not to, you know, not to minimize legal behavior, but the juice is, is not worth the squeeze many a times when you're executing these no-knock warrants.
1: The lawsuits are still going on, and name Deputy Cavalier, Deputy Matranga, the West Baton Rouge Sheriff, and the Sheriff's Office as defendants, as well as other deputies involved in the case. In a court filing, a lawyer representing the sheriff and Deputy Matranga denied allegations from the family's initial lawsuit. They haven't responded to newer claims about Deputy Matranga's use of his modified gun. Deputy Cavalier is still on the force. He's a lieutenant now. And when the West Baton Rouge Sheriff's Office was featured on a reality TV show, called Live PD in 2020. He was one of its stars. Deputy Matranga was placed on paid leave by the West Baton Rouge Sheriff's Office right after the shooting. But soon after that, he was back to doing administrative work while the Louisiana State Police did their investigation. In March of 2020, prosecutors declined to press charges. Since then, he's been promoted to corporal. Cloud Gavel is going strong. In 2016, police used their software to submit almost 13,000 electronic warrants. Last year, they submitted nearly 90,000, and they're growing. Casey didn't tell us the exact number of how many agencies have reached out to try their software, but he told me the pandemic has only increased interest.
0: Broken Doors is hosted by Jen Abelson and Nicole Dunka. It's produced by Rena Flores, Sabi Robinson, and Lena Muhammad. It's edited by Renita Jablonski and David Fallis, with additional editing by Theo Balcom and Sarah Childress. Original music, sound design, mixing, and theme by Ted Muldoon. All the episodes in the series are out now. To listen and subscribe, go to WashingtonPost.com slash Broken Doors, or your favorite podcast app. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.